0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm joined by Deborah Lipstadt, the professor of history who is, I guess, best known at this stage for having taken on and seen off David Irving some years ago over the great libel trial about his Holocaust denial. Now, Deborah is returning to what she describes as you know, her toil in the sewers of Holocaust denial and anti Semitism with a new book called Anti Semitism Here and Now. Deborah, welcome. Can I start by asking you, you know, why this book now? What made you think, right, back into the sewer?
1: Well, about four years ago, I began to notice what I saw as an uptick in anti Semitism. And just as some background or contextualization for your listeners, I've been one of those who for years have said, you know, let's not be chicken little. Dear me, the sky is not falling. Things are much better. Of course, there's anti-Semitism, but look at all the good stuff. Look at all the acceptance, the achievements, etc. But a couple of years ago, I began to notice that it seemed to be permeating both to the right and to the left politically. And I did what an academic does when they see a problem that intrigues them, that, that puzzles them. I sat down to write a book. And it was a h- much harder book to write than any of the others, other books I've written, and I've written a couple of books, because it was contemporary. When I've been writing about the Holocaust, different aspects of the Holocaust, even Holocaust denial, it's in the past. It's people arguing about what was or talking about was, studying what was. This was contemporary, and every day there seemed to be Something new happening, some new development, whether wherever it was, whether it was Paris, whether it was here in London, whether it was the States, Charlottesville, whatever it might have been. By the end, my editor had literally dragged it out of my hands at the end of August, two thousand and eighteen. She said, "Deborah, hit send today, or we're going to miss our publishing deadline." So right before I hit send, I wrote, "This was a hard book to write for the reasons I've just enumerated, but it was even harder book to finish." Because things were happening all along, but I'm willing. And as a historian, I don't usually engage in predictions because I think most historians who predict know they're going to be wrong. <laughs> they know it from the reading of history. I say, but I'm willing to predict. By the time this book appears, something will have happened that should have been included. That was the end of that was beginning of September. Then came Pittsburgh. So
0: yeah, and you framed the book in an unusual way because it's a sort of I want to say Socratic dialogue but maybe a rabbinic dialogue. Um, (laughs) I like Socratic. (laughs) It's an exchange of letters Mm -hmm. between you and two imaginary people. Right. Which some people might find troubling. I mean, well, most, most students,
1: people have liked it. Uh, the book has been out less than a week in the States. It's in its second printing already. People have responded quite positively. Most people have responded quite positively. What happened was I sat down to write it as a straightforward sort of historical contemporary academic book, and it was just boring. It was just, it had no, as I like to say, it had no juice. That's J-O-I-C-E. Lots of J-E-W-S's, but no J. And a friend said to me, try it as letters. And that clicked. And what I did was create two fictional characters, a student, a graduating senior from the university at Emory, and a colleague at the university, non-Jewish. So the student was Jewish, the colleague not Jewish. And though they're fictional, everything they ask me is either from emails, conversations, exchanges that I've had with students, with colleagues, with people on campus, off campus, over the past four years. So, ironically, people often have fictional characters in which I put exact words. Historical words. And, I mean, to start with, very early on, you know, you say we need to have
0: a definition of right. anti-Semitism. But that's obviously itself very
1: tricky, isn't it? Right. I mean, well, especially <laughs> here in London, it's become, it's become tricky and become quite politicized. It's, it's not that hard, Anti-Semitism has much of its roots in the New Testament. It's not saying that the New Testament is ipso facto anti-Semitic, but the story of the death of Jesus and the way that story was taught and used by church fathers, and I mainly church fathers, so I'm not being sexist here or selective, over millennia has really created the template for anti-Semitism. What do I mean by that? The way the story is told, Jesus, or stepping back, the Jews, even though Jesus was a Jew and the Jews who are accused of it are Jews, doesn't matter. That's historical data. We're not going to worry about that. But the Jews wanted Jesus killed because, he, amongst other things, he wanted to chase the money changers out of the temple. And then they convinced Rome, Rome didn't want to do it, but they convinced Rome to, or the Roman authorities, to do this action. Now, Rome was the, the ultimate power in the world at the time, so it wasn't just convincing a nobody. This was something significant. And Rome went along with them, even though it meant depriving the world of the goodness and the wonders that, that Jesus could have brought to the world. There you have the template for antisemitism, money, financial interests, a clever diabolical smarts, not just smarts, but a diabolical smarts, and a power and nefarious use of that power able to convince Rome. That's the template. So if you're looking, you know, someone could say something against a Jew, they don't like that Jew, Jews don't like other Jews, you know, it's, but once you have those elements as part of it, you've crossed the bounds from not not liking, but to more than that then I think there's something else. It's persistent. It continues. It morphs. So I've been talking about anti-Semitism within Christianity, where it stayed for millennia. But then Eventually it morphs, it develops, it's in the Islamic world. Then it's in Voltaire, who's no friend of the church. And then it's amongst secularists, humanists, whatever they call themselves, you know, and and the people who talk about blood, that Jews have a different blood, they're cosmopolitan, they're not of us, they're etc. Karl Marx, who was obviously anti-anything to do with religion. But the template remains the same. Yeah. I remember reading Jonathan Steinberg's book about Bismarck, mm-hmm. where he says,
0: which which threw something into... Mm-hmm. Relief. He said, you know, the whole political system, you know, up until the early 19th century, was based in Europe on land and that and the Jews
1: represented mobile capital. Right, right. Because they were not allowed to own land. The yeah. church forbid them from owning land. So they filled other pockets in the society which were needed, artisans and then, you know, finances, especially initially. I mean, there were lots of non-Jewish banking houses in, in Europe, throughout Europe, Italy, Germany, etc. But they filled the more risky areas, but then it's turned around on them, and oh, you're like this. You do this. You're this is this is a an expression of the bad things in your character.
0: Yeah. Is there something that differentiates anti-Semitism in particular from other forms of racism? I mean, I, I remember, you know, as a teenager, thinking it's weird on the face of it that anti-Semitism is such a thing because you'd think, even anthropologically. You know, you can understand how somebody with a different coloured skin or a different language is, you know, frightening another. Mm-hmm. But, you know, because Jewish history, people have historically passed, have,
1: right? You know, well, you know, they're, they're, they, they look Jews just are, like us. You know? Jews are well, not all of them look just like you know you and I are considered white. Of course, for the right wingers, I'm not white because I'm Jewish and that's the irony of it. But there are lots of Jews, uh, over half the population of Israel is people of what we would say of color. You know, I put that in air quotes. Anti-Semitism is similar to other prejudices and it's distinctive. It's similar. Think about the etymology of the word prejudice, prejudge. Don't confuse me with the facts. I've made up my mind. I see, uh, if I'm in America, I see an African-American. I know that they are, these are the stereotypical, prejudicial stereotypes, shiftless, lazy, gang, welfare cheats, you know, welfare queens, whatever, the stereotypical kind of things. At one time with Italians, ah, Italian, wealthy, mafioso, you know, again, you had different stereotypes. So with Jews, it's the finance, the power, clannish. I mean, even the charges against Jews, Jews are capitalists. Jews are communists. Jews are pushy. They want to be in places they're not wanted. They're clannish. They stay together. They're diametrically opposed. But that doesn't matter. That's logical. And we're talking about a prejudice, which isn't logical. So in that sense of having specific stereotypes associated with it, it's very much like other prejudices. But it's also distinctive. Let's compare it to racism, which I I do in the book. The racist sees the person of color, the black person, as threatening to their society because they're going to bring the society down. We have a member of the, of the House of Representatives from Iowa, Stephen King in the United States, who, who said we should not build our future on brown babies. He was talking about immigration from South America. And of course, the Republicans have now have stood behind him until very recently. Now they say, oh, he's not, not so good, but they've generally supported him. And because they're going to bring us down, they're going to pollute the, the they're gonna, yeah. they're gonna let they're lesser than us. They're not smart, they don't have anything to contribute, they're gonna ruin us as white people. Anti Semitism, in contrast, sees the Jew as smarter than, more conniving, and therefore more dangerous. So it's a different kind of way of looking at it. you identify
0: early on as a conspiracy theory. Yeah, it is sense. a
1: conspiracy. Yeah. It's absolutely a conspiracy theory, which racism is not. It's just different. Conspiracy theory making no sense. You know, when you have a problem in the world and you need someone to blame it on, let's go blame it on the Jews because I can, you know, let me, if I blamed it on the bicycle riders, you'd think I was crazy. In fact, there was a joke that was supposedly told by Jews in Germany in the 30s. Of a Nazi official comes to a rally, and the Jews are our misfortune, and the Jews did this, and the Jews did that, and somebody yells out, and the bicycle riders and he turns he says, "Why the bicycle riders and the person says, "Why the Jews? you know in other words, it makes no sense that doesn't mean there aren't individual Jews who are terrible people, and I don't like, and I wouldn't want his friends or compatriots or anything, but when you minute, you put the in front of any group, then you're leaning towards and if not." Cross the line into prejudice, and when it's the Jews, you've crossed the line into anti-Semitism.
0: Yeah. now You 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 do quite a neat sort of taxonomy of anti different mm. forms of anti-Semitism right. as you regard them. How can you lay yeah, that out sure. for us? Sure. Um, mm.
1: Well, I start with the extremist anti-Semite. That's the one we all recognize. You know, the person who marches down the street in a you know a SS-like uniform. With the arm, his arm out, or her arm outstretched, you know, with Sig Heil, those people we recognize. Even Jeremy Corbyn would recognize that person and, as and a cross threat guy. and be <laughs> against that person. But then you move from there into what I call the anti-Semitic enabler, the person who themselves might not be an anti-Semite. But through their discourse, through their rhetoric, through the groups they support, through the groups they refuse to condemn, the supporters they refuse to condemn or to reject— Enable anti-Semitism, enable racism, enable prejudice. Then there's what I call the dinner party anti-Semite. The person who would never think of lifting a hand or doing anything physical against Jews, but who makes a statement saying, even it can sound positive. You know, let's say the person ahead of a law firm said, we just hired this young Jewish associate, but he's very good. And he's completely honest. We like him very much. That you're, you meant yeah. that
0: but, you know. Well, you, you, you somewhat quote someone saying that a philo semite is, is an anti-Semite and, and, who and likes right, Jews. That's
1: <laughs> right. Franklin Foyer, the journalist in, in the Washington, said that a philosemite semite is an anti-Semite who likes Jews. Look, that's one of my primary own encounters with anti-Semitism was shortly after I began teaching at the University of Washington, my first job, straight out of graduate school. I didn't know what was up, you know. And I'm hired, the first person to be hired by this very good university, to teach Jewish studies, Jewish history. I was teaching modern Jewish history, and I was in the history department, and it, it worked out beautifully. They loved my teaching. They loved what I was writing. It was it was a wonderful experience. And about six or eight months after being there, a colleague takes me out for a coffee, and he says, "Deborah, I have to tell you, when I heard that this job was that the person they had hired for this job was a Jewish woman who was raised in New York, I was really worried." but you're terrific. You're wonderful. We are thrilled to have you. And I almost choked on my coffee because, I, you know, I didn't, I was, I, I was too stupid, young, naive. It's hard to think that, but to, to, have to say anything or too flabbergasted, gobsmacked, as you Brits would say, to, to say anything, but it was clearly, he thought he was saying something very nice and very complimentary. Then the, the final category is the clueless anti-Semite. And I tell the story of actually happened to a friend of mine who had gone to a nursing school, and she her closest friends there were a couple of young women from the Midwest, most of whom had never encountered Jews before, never been with Jews before. They were in, in New York City at a, school, a nursing school in New York. And towards the end of their time at school, they went out for a celebratory lunch prior to graduation and they were talking about things they'd missed in New York, and one of them said, I found this great place for bargains. You can really save money. It's great. And she turned to my friend, the only Jew at the table, and said, you're really going to be interested in this. And my friend said to her, oh, I didn't know Jews were the only ones who wanted to save their hard-earned money. You know, and nurses at that point didn't make a lot of money, and it it suddenly clicked, and the young woman who said it got it, but she didn't realize it before. But a lot of not just anti-Semitism, racism, prejudice, other forms of prejudice. You, you have no idea. Because you've lived in a society where it is prevalent, where it has such long roots, you slip into it without even knowing it. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book.
0: But one of the, you know, this deep roots, I and mean, I think of the sort of dandelions in my allotment. Mm-hmm. that You,
1: you, pull, you, them know, the top, you right pull them out and
0: they come right back. You pull them out and they come right back. Why is it, you think, I mean, it's a very big question but. Why is it that we're now seeing this upsurge? And why are we seeing it in this, you know, both on the right and And the left. left?
1: We see it. Well, first of all, we're seeing it on the right. We're seeing it on the left. And we're seeing it from a third direction, jihadist, extremist, Islamist, whatever term you want to use. And sadly, and I want to say this very carefully because I don't want to be misunderstood, within sectors of Muslim community, particularly here in Europe, where amongst people who would never think of doing any physical harm, but where there is this sort of teaching that Jews are bad, Jews are evil, Jews can't be trusted—an inculcation of anti-Semitism—and the various studies have shown it. EU studies have shown it. Studies done here in in the UK have shown it. Why now? I think it's a combination to produce this perfect storm, as as I like to call it. First of all, there are there's a populist sort of movement here in Europe, in the United States as well, which, and it it goes beyond patriotism, it goes to a certain nationalism, it goes to a nationalism, my country is right, always. And it has been stirred up by politicians, whether you're talking about Viktor Orban in Hungary, whether you're talking about the ruling party in Poland, whether you're talking about Donald Trump, whether you're talking about Jeremy Corbyn, this, this sort of inculcation of it, you know, and, and Trump has done it very well. I don't know I don't think he's I don't know if Trump is an anti Semite. I don't think he is, but he's one of those enablers, you know. So I think that's part of it. We also have social media and I don't want to beat up on social media. I use I couldn't have written this book without, you know, having internet access and but I like to talk about the internet and social media in general as a knife. A knife in the hands of a murderer it's going to do great damage. A knife in the hands of a surgeon is going to save your life. So it's how you use it. Which, and I use that analogy because with the gift of social media now comes a tremendous responsibility. We've seen the damage social media can do. If you're going to use it, you got to be really careful. We've we've got to teach young people how to think critically, how to look at things critically. We're not just young people. I recently was on social media and I saw an article attacking a far right winger, and I said, "Oh, I like this." You know, it shows the guy is a, a homophobe or a misogynist. I don't even remember anymore, but it was so extreme. I was about to hit share. I was about to you know put it on Facebook and read and tweet about it, etc. And I, something in me just stopped. And I went to see if there were other papers that had reported on it because it was so outrageous. It was the kind of thing. That, and the only paper that was reporting on it was the paper that was spreading the story or the source. It wasn't even a a trusted journalistic account. So I just didn't do it. But you can slip into it very easily. So it's the social media. It's uh, people stirring up populism and a sense of, I think for many people, the changing economy, economic dislocation. I was just talking about the fact that you know when i go to the bank now i deposit my checks at the at the atm machine at the cash point rather than going inside and some teller's going to lose her job you know because we aren't using tellers or when we pay our parking fees we use the machine instead of paying someone who's sitting at the booth there this change in the society and when there's dislocation in the society People look for someone to blame, so if I were to say it's the, it's the fault of the bicycle riders, or it's the fault of the left-hand people uh, left-handed people, you would say to me, Deborah, we're going to the psychiatrist because you're nuts, But if I say to you it's the fault of the Jews that the Jews are behind this, or the Jews have done this or the Jewish you know bankers or whatever, it's familiar to you. You know if you're talking if you, if you want to change it to a racist analogy when you say oh they're crimes and they're gangs in the United States most people's minds and I would say probably here in the UK for many people as well. Go to black people. You know they must be, you must be talking about blacks. It's a euphemism. So when it's something familiar, you sort of fall back on it. And, and the final point I want to make here, and, and I talk about anti-Semitism as the oldest, the longest hatred. Many people use that, those phrases because it is, but it's got those roots that they're familiar to people. It, it makes sense. It's something I've seen before, and some level you could describe anti-Semitism, and it's 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 not a, a very nice well. There's nothing nice about anti-Semitism, but it's like a herpes virus. You know, herpes, when you get herpes, now I think there are actually medications that can cure it. But for, for many years, once you got a herpes, it was always there inside of you. And at times of stress, it could come out. You always hear these horror stories of the bride who wakes up on the morning of her wedding and she's got a, a herpes sore on her lip, you know, <laughs> because she's under tension, it comes out. Anti-Semitism is like the herpes virus. Yeah. Well, it Comes out.
0: Well, let's talk about medications, you know, We can identify it, we can say sometimes, you know, this is what it is, it's a pattern of thinking. But how specifically, I mean, of course, you can argue against it, you can make the case you're making, but do you think, for instance, that, you know, prohibiting certain expressions of anti-Semitism that fall short of incitement to violence... Is something that is worth doing or can be done in Prince, I mean, what do you think about for instance I laws don't... against Holocaust denial? In well, Germany? I've
1: actually I was a, took part in a debate at the Oxford Union where I spoke against laws outlawing Holocaust denial. And I said, you know, this is the most unexpected kind of thing because you would think that I would for one would be very much in favor of them. In fact, when David Irving, who sued me for libel, was arrested after my trial, was arrested in Austria for Holocaust denial, I spoke out against it. I didn't go to the barricades for him. I had other things. You know, First, I was going to work on climate change yeah. and on racism. And when I solve those, I'll work on this one. But I spoke out absolutely against laws like outlawing Holocaust denial. I do that for two reasons. First of all, I'm a, a free speech advocate. You know, in the United States, we have the First Amendment. It's under assault. It's hanging on by its fingernails, but it's still surviving. And I think, I think the way you fight bad speech is with good speech. But secondly, speaking from a strategic point of view, I don't think they're efficacious. I don't think it works. You turn it into forbidden fruit. Look, when Mein Kampf was freely published in Germany after years of being banned, when the ban expired, everybody was buying it, you know, because it was suddenly, oh, now I can read it. Then they read it, they saw it was complete nonsense and hateful nonsense, pernicious nonsense, but nonsense. But I don't think they really were.
0: I was just saying one of the odd things about the whole Irving thing, and I don't want to go back to that incessantly, but I think it was Christopher Hitchens pointed out, he said, you know, he presented himself as a kind of martyr for free speech. Right. When, in fact, he'd been trying to shut you down rather than vice versa.
1: And, you know, there were people who said, oh, uh, you know, she had so much support and he was this poor man. And uh, that, that. He sued me and he offered to settle with me. He offered to settle with me about two months before the trial. Maybe when he saw the work that had been done by these wonderful historians that we hired as expert witnesses, Richard Evans, Robert Jan von Pelt, Christopher Brown, a dream team of historians. But he offered to settle for me for, with me for 500 pounds to a charity of his choice, which already was a deal breaker because he, you know, uh, given to a Holocaust denial institute or something like that. And the pulping of all my books, and an apology to him. So, in other words, it was my free speech he was trying to stifle, and I wasn't trying. I didn't bring this case. I don't believe that history belongs in the courtroom. They're two different venues, or two different kinds of venues. But uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I just don't believe that works. I don't believe outlawing these kind of things is efficacious. But
0: equally, as you say quite eloquently, arguing. Back against them is tricky because the Very conspiratorial notion, kind of character of anti-Semitism, yeah. as you say, makes it you know uncannily resistant to disproof. Right. It's revival. it's
1: well. It's also it, it's illogical. It's a conspiracy theory. It's irrational. Prejudice is irrational. So I remember once when I was teaching early in my career. Actually, early in my career at Emory in Atlanta, where I teach, I was teaching a course on films of the Holocaust, films depicting the Holocaust, with a film specialist. And the way we set up the class was I would lecture, let's say on Tuesday, about, let's say we were doing The Garden of the Finci Contini, it's a wonderful Italian film. I would lecture about the Holocaust in Italy. Wednesday night, the students would see the film. And then Thursday, she would do an analysis with them against the background and the film. And we agreed, since it was a large lecture class, we wouldn't Interrupt each other. It wasn't a seminar sitting around a table. So the first section of the course was devoted to propaganda films. It was all these anti-Semitic propaganda films, and I was lecturing about propaganda in Nazi Germany, and a student raised her hand, and it was an innocent kind of question, but it was the internalization of anti-Semitism, and she said, but weren't all the bankers and lawyers in Germany Jews? So I'm taken aback by this, and I said, well, wait a minute. Think about there were you know, fewer than 600,000, 500,000 Jews in Germany, a country in, at that time, at the beginning of the Nazi period of 60 million people. You know, There were only so many in the, in the workforce, and there was this banking house that was not Jewish, and that... I began to answer with facts and figures. And my co-teacher who happened to be a former nun, Italian Catholic from Philadelphia, stood up, looked at the student. So she was interrupting me, something we agreed we wouldn't do. She looked at the student, she said, so what? Her answer was the right answer. My answer was the wrong answer. Because I was addressing prejudice, which, again, as I say, is, is prejudge. It's irrational with a rational argument. And yet, you've got to fight it. The only way to fight it is with rational arguments. So you're in this conundrum, you're in this sort of strange position, I've got to fight something irrational by explaining to you rationally how irrational it is. It's tough. Yeah.
0: Now, I don't want to disappear down a rabbit hole here. But, you know, obviously, one of the major issues you deal with in your book is the question of anti-Semitism and criticism of Israel and the way that the two are often conflated or used as cover for each other. How important do you think it was that the Labour Party's row here about anti-Semitism, which I know you've paid attention to, that, you know, their sort of final sticking point in adopting the HRA definitions was that, you know, the example, the idea that criticism of Israel as a foundationally racist endeavour is itself anti-Semitic.
1: The whole debate over definition, and we've gone through the definition, but I think the conflation with Israel, criticism of Israeli policies is not anti-Semitism. You want to read criticism of Israeli policies, read Haaretz.com, you know, Israel's daily, and you'll see strong criticism of governmental policies. Go sit in a debate of the Knesset and you'll see criticism of Israeli policies. That's not anti-Semitism. But it's when you focus on Israel— to the singular sort of exclusion of all other wrongs when that's the only place that gets your attention. When you say, oh, there were wrongs created that, that happened in the, crea- in the course of the creation of the state of Israel, which, which is true, which is documented. And therefore, Israel doesn't have a right to exist without saying, wait a minute, there were wrongs. Try. Uh, let me name some other countries that had wrongs in the course of their establishment. I'll start with one I know pretty well, the United States or Australia or Canada. But no one says they don't have a right to exist. Or you say Israel is a theocracy and as, as a member of the House of Representatives recently said, and theocracies are outmoded and shouldn't exist. Well, the same person neglected to note that there are dozens of muslim countries which are theocracies including the countries involved yeah, right, in the middle east still, yeah. <laughs> you know? and how about the england you know with the church of england but the the, the muslim theocracies are truth you know most of them are true theocracies so when you have this singular focus when you put all of it on, in one place or when you deflect any criticism you know as saying this is because i'm a critic of israel i'll give you an example the recently the new york times book review has a, has a, a section where it, it takes a famous author a significant author and asks what are the books on your bedside table so they recently interviewed alice walker pulitzer prize winner color purple the women uh, th- women's theory etc important important writer and african american writer and she noted that a book on her bedside table was by a brit and she loved this book. She just loved this book. Well, this book was so, is so anti-Semitic that the publisher, who was originally supposed to publish it, refused to publish it. And it's just, it argues that the world is run by a group of people descended from reptiles— who are these are Jews and they engage in child sacrifice. And it's a book by a wingnut that gives wingnuts a bad name, you know? Maybe she um, thought it was a science fiction novel. Well, no, she says <laughs> it explains a lot of answers a lot of questions. When she was taken to task by this, by lots of people criticizing her for it, she said, Oh, it's just because of my views on the Palestinians and on Israel. It had nothing to do with that. It had to do that she was promoting a book that was overtly anti-Semitic you know so it's that strange conflation again not criticism of policies and the people who say I'm going to be very brave and criticize Israel's policies you're not so brave lots of people including lots of israelis criticize the policies it's when you have a singular focus when you put on that anti-semitic template when you don't look at other countries when you when you use this, this strange barometer or the strange measuring rod that's when questions are raised sure. and when
0: i mean you explained there's a good expression you use i think inverted was it in, in Holocaust or something? Oh, oh The victims yes, become perpetrators. Yes, yes, true? You, you reverse, yeah. you
1: turn, or when you talk about the Nazi-like tactics of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, or that Israel is committing a genocide against the Palestinians. Now, you can think Israel's policies vis-a-vis the Palestinians are wrong. You can even think they're immoral. You can think, think they're not strategically wise for Israel, and they're not, et cetera. Do you but, think that's anti-Semitic when people say it's an apartheid state? I don't think it's accurate. I don't think it's accurate at all. I think there, you know, there are many problems faced by Arab citizens of Israel. But, the, you know, it's not an apartheid state in that sense. You have Arabs in the in the Knesset. You have, you know, the full-fledged citizens, et cetera. I have trouble with certain laws Israel's passed recently, et cetera. But to talk about it as an apartheid state, I think, is to to append upon to Israel a wrong uh, – there are ways of criticizing it. But apartheid, I don't think, is the right one. I think there are problems vis-a-vis the Palestinians, but that's a, that's again a separate issue. But when you talk about genocide, or you talk about the Nazi-like tactics, or that this is you know an example of the victim becoming the the Nazi, and etc., that's that's way over the. T- it's just irrational. You can criticize lots of things and criticize them strongly, but that goes beyond the pale.
0: Finally, just speaking of irrational, one of the most sort of eyebrow-raising parts of your book is towards the end you talk about Netanyahu's sort of apparent alliances of convenience with the Law and Justice party in Poland and with Orbán in, in, in Hungary, Hungary yeah. and you know these are sort of profoundly anti-Semitic leaders who are using the tropes for anti-Semitism, and yet he's saying, you know, it's all good.
1: It's very troubling. It's very, very troubling. And in fact, just this morning, oh, as I was flying into the UK, it's a long flight from Atlanta, I was thinking about writing something about this, because I'm deeply troubled by it. You see it in the demonization of George Soros, that, you know, politics makes strange bedfellows. Netanyahu lives in the world of Realpolitik. He's not sitting in some you know ivory tower writing books or I'm sitting in my study writing books or whatever. And he sees Hungary and Poland, you know, they're valuable and reliable allies. But it's very troubling when you not only overlook the overt anti-Semitism. Victor Orban's use of George Soros as the quote-unquote boogeyman—you know, he's the—he's—and the, then they claim the Hungarians claim, oh, it's only about his attitude on refugees. We're not criticizing him because he's a Jew. The caricatures they use, the way they speak about him, it's clearly anti-Semitic. Netanyahu has no love lost for George Soros. He's been a great opponent of a critic of Israel, a very strong critic of Israel. I don't agree with everything George Soros says or does, but this is clearly—Soros has become, in the words of a a British scholar, David Hirsch, Soros has become the House of Rothschild of the 21st century. And when I see Jews, when I see Israelis, and it's particularly troubling with with Netanyahu and the people around him because they claim— that Israel is the in the forefront of the fight against anti-Semitism. When Jews are attacked, Israel will be there. This is very disturbing and very, very unsettling to watch.
0: Deborah thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. You were listening to the Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes Store. We'd love to hear from you.